Well, good morning. And happy Easter, happy Resurrection Day. The Lord is risen. Mark chapter 16 is where I'd like you to find in your Bibles. And for the past old month or so, and for the coming weeks, we're doing basically the same thing, looking at Jesus' final days on earth. We're considering the historical facts and the eternal significance of those events. We began with Jesus' passion in the Garden of Gethsemane, on to the betrayal by Jesus, to the trial, trials. Then on Good Friday, we examined the crucifixion. At our sunrise service, we thought about the burial of Jesus. And then today, this morning in this hour, I want us to try to make sense of the empty tomb. Making sense of the empty tomb. That empty tomb that was discovered by a group of women who had been following Jesus during his ministry. The empty tomb that we now read about in Mark chapter 16. And let's read together verses 1 through 8. It says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We begin the account of the resurrection with this. Some of Jesus' followers trying to make sense and meaning of Jesus' death. Trying to make sense and meaning of Jesus' death. Proverbs 30 says that the grave is never satisfied. The grave is one of those things in life that never says that's enough. In other words, the grave is that great gaping hole that eventually consumes every person and is never satisfied. One thing that is evident across all times, cultures, places, peoples, and all of the world is that death comes for us all. And we try to make meaning of it. We try to make sense of it. We try to cope with it in all kinds of ways, all kinds of rituals and services and things that we do to try to make sense of it, to make meaning of death. I was thinking about just a year ago, Easter. It was raining. It was gloomy. We were having an outside service because of COVID, and and what a difference a year makes. I tell you, in the resurrection account, what a difference a day can make. But I was thinking about COVID, and one of the shocking things during the height of it all, it seemed like, for me, one of the most shocking, startling things was when the news would show these 
freezer trailers and semis brought in to cope with all of the dead. And, and just watching that, I can't imagine you know, being there, but, but watching that, it drove home the stark reality of death. Because we, we, we dress up death. And, and when, again, we, we make rituals, and, and, and when someone dies, I mean, there's, there's a lot of plans we make. And, and, and I've, I've walked alongside uh, my own family and many families in a grieving process, and I'll tell you, it's exhausting because of all the different things that go on. But one of the things it does, it sort of keeps you from having to think about it. But usually after the funeral, when all of the quietness comes, that's when you're really coping with things. And we find some of Jesus' disciples, the faithful women that have followed him along and followed and watched him on the cross, and when he came down, they watched him be buried, so they knew where he was, where his body laid, they come, and, and they're going to anoint his body and put perfumes and spices and various things that they would do. One of the things that's interesting about the gospel accounts, all of them, and we see it here in Mark, is that none of the followers of Jesus were anticipating resurrection. They were anticipating the decay of a dead body in a tomb. And so they went to deal with some of those things. Here is this group of ladies trying to make meaning and sense of the death of Jesus that was so gruesome and horrific. When people were put in these tombs, you know, there, there was embalming actually at that time, but many people were not embalmed. And so, as you know, not to be too graphic, but I think that we're meant to think about it in graphic terms, the body was going to decay probably rather quickly. And what they would do, they would put these bodies in a, sh- a shell for a space in these tombs, And if they had not been embalmed, they would put spices and all sorts of fragrant things and anointing oils that were very aromatic, in part to cover some of the stench of death. You'll remember when Lazarus died, right, that Jesus is coming, and they don't want to go into the tomb because they said already there is the stench of death, and so they're going to ward off and do the best they can to cover up the stench of death, just like we do when we face the reality of dying. And they come in, and they're going to do that to get him ready. And then the body would go ahead and decay. And the Jews particularly, a lot of times what they would do is they would go in and gather up the bones, and they would place them in a box called an ossuary. So gather them up and compact them, and then they could be moved and things like that. So that was a fairly common way of dealing with death in Jewish practice. Again, I think it's shocking to me But it's easy for me to say this side of the resurrection. It's shocking that these ladies, the most faithful of disciples, and certainly none of the men were expecting a resurrection. If you turn back to Mark chapter 14, I think it's in verses 27 and 8, Jesus has actually told them right about the time of the Last Supper. So just a few days before, he says this. He says, when they strike the shepherd, the the sheep will scatter, but I will be raised. And I'm going to come and meet you in Galilee. Now again, this side of the resurrection, we go, he told them. But they weren't expecting that. I don't know. You know, Jesus said a lot of things, and he said them with such brevity. And maybe out of much context. And the disciples, they just, over and over, they ceased to understand what was going on, didn't they? And we like to say, stupid disciples. I would have got it, right? But probably not. But they heard that. Jesus say, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter, but I will be raised and I'll come and meet you in Galilee. That's what's about to happen here. 
but they're not expecting resurrection. Who knows what they're expecting? Maybe they said, here's another one of those sayings of Jesus we don't get. Maybe it's a parable. Maybe he's talking about he's going to be spiritually raised. I don't know. But that's just another one of those things that Jesus said. But here's the thing. They were not expecting resurrection. They're going to anoint this dead body to make sense and meaning best they can of Jesus' death. And so then it says these ladies, you know, and they're talking along the way. Well, you know, one of the things that we didn't really think about, they headed out, you know, before it was daylight so they could get there right, probably at sunrise. Uh, They put a big stone. They rolled that big stone and they would cut these grooves and they would roll the stone over the tomb and it would sit down in grooves and they're like, ah. Who's going to move that thing for us? How are we going to deal with that? Well, maybe they, you know, they were ladies of faith, and that's and so they go on about their way. And to their surprise and to their convenience, when they, when they get there, they look at the place where Jesus' body had been laid, and the stone is rolled back. Now, this was not a little rock. They didn't have excavators and bulldozers. It was pretty easy to get the rock in place. Not so easy even for a group of ladies to get it out of the way, to move it back but it has been rolled away. And here's what we see. They found an empty tomb. Uh, Well, almost empty. Actually, did you know the tomb wasn't empty? There's someone in there. And that someone is going to help them, listen to this, make sense of the empty tomb or the fact that Jesus is not where his body had been laid. So they enter the tomb. I mean, I'll tell you, at, that, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm probably running like a scared girl the other way. I don't know. I don't know if I would have gone in. But they go in the tomb. And what do they see? It says just inside, they see a young man. And he's wearing white, a white robe. And I think that the implication we're meant to understand is that this is a heavenly messenger. You could call it an angel. I would just say a heavenly messenger. In other words, God has sent a messenger you know, the white robe gives it away a little bit. They're shocked. It's a, a lot of times angels would appear as young men, you know, and things like that. But here's the thing. God sent a messenger to explain why Jesus' body was not where it had been placed on Friday. And this is Sunday. And here's what he says. Jesus, you know that Nazarene. So, so give some very clear descriptors. Jesus the Nazarene, the the one that had been crucified, is implied here. The one that had been indeed laid here in this tomb has been raised. He is not here. Now listen, folks, he's not just spiritually raised. In other words, a lot of people, a lot of the Jews included, they had an idea of of, of being raised, of afterlife, as as an ethereal, non-material, non-bodily Life, but you know, it's spiritual. We we talk about things that don't really exist. They're spiritual, right? It's not material. He says, no, 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 the resurrection of Jesus, the raising of Jesus is the fact that, listen to this, his body is not here. He's raised bodily. And, in fact, if if that's not spooky enough, how many of y'all would be spooked at this point? Don't lie. How many of y'all are still there in the tomb? Maybe some of you would still be there. He's been raised. And not only that, he's on his way to Galilee. And I'm not going to Galilee. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, this is scary. This is weird. Admit it. 
This, this does not happen. And this angelic messenger says, and he's going to meet his disciples, just as he said in Mark chapter 14, verse 28, when I'm raised, I will meet you in Galilee. So this resurrected, raised Jesus is on the move, and he's on his way to Galilee, just like he said. History is very clear, and we talked about that this morning in the, in the sunrise service, that Jesus was dead. These were professional executioners. Not only that, Pilate had been asked for the body by this man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was one of the council who had condemned Jesus to die. So those who condemned Jesus to die said, we are going to make sure this guy's body is buried, placed in a place that we know where it's at. And Pilate first says, and he calls in the centurion, that is one of the lead soldiers who was there attending Jesus' death, and says, is he dead? Now, I'm no doctor. You know, they didn't have stethoscopes and things like that. But I'll tell you this, a professional executioner knows when somebody is dead. He said he's dead. He's dead, not only that, they knew that he was buried. History makes that clear. There are historical documents even outside of the Gospels, which are, by the way, the four Gospels, very clear, excellent historical documents. You won't find any that are better attested or of better veracity, but you can even go outside the Bible to look at history, and it says, there was this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, and he died, and he was buried. And I'll tell you this, the Romans and the Jews who had Jesus killed and the disciples of Jesus all three were privy to the fact they knew very well he had been buried in this tomb. What do you do with that? You see, God sent a messenger to tell these first disciples, the people who got up early, by the way. <laughs> That's the people who find Jesus' tomb empty. By the, you know. So I'm a morning person, easy for me to say. But, but he says, here's what's happened. He's been raised. But it's not only the disciples that got to deal with the empty tomb. So do the Jews, and so do the Romans. That, friends, is a historical fact. And none of them refuted the fact that Jesus had been placed there. But they also had to make sense of the empty tomb. You know, skeptics throughout history, at that time and since, writers of books and people who do things like the Jesus Seminar, they look at these events and try to pick them apart and try to, try to prove that they're not true. But the fact is that these things written in the Gospels hold up to our questioning. People try to make sense of the empty tomb and they say, well, we need to ask, who would have something to gain if Jesus' body is no longer there? That's a great question. Is this, in other words, they say, is this a hoax perpetrated by some group for some purpose? And so you take that tack and you start going down that trail and you ask this, well, who would have something to gain from stealing Jesus' body? Well, the first and easiest thing to say is, what about grave robbers? That was a deal, a real deal. Grave robbers. You know, a lot of times people are buried with some treasures and goods and things like that. Maybe grave robbers had something to gain by stealing Jesus' body. You know, that doesn't really hold up to the facts very well either because Jesus had been publicly crucified. And as he was crucified, there in front of all to see, even his clothing was gambled away. What you had when Jesus was buried was a dead body wrapped in a linen cloth. 
things of no earthly value. So grave robbers had nothing to gain by stealing Jesus' body. What about the Jews? Many of the Jews were pretty aware that Jesus had been making claims that he was God, that he would live forever, that he was going to come from the clouds of heaven, that he was the Son of Man, that he was going to be raised. So the Jews that had Jesus put to death had absolutely nothing to gain by stealing his body and giving rise to the claim that he had been raised. No, they wanted him put in that tomb and left there. What about Rome? What about Pilate? (laughs) Pilate's main gig was, let's quiet this Jesus and Jewish controversy down. Man, we need peace. So he was like the Jewish enemies of Jesus. He said, we just want to put this thing to sleep. So much so that he said, I'm I'm going to put some guards there and make sure that there is no weirdness going on. Mm. Who had anything to gain? But when Jesus' body was not there, everybody had to deal with that question and try to make sense of it. So the Jews and the Romans, they said, we don't know. But the Jewish Leaders, the enemies of Jesus, said, we're going to have to do something. We're going to go, and they bribed the soldiers who were guarding the tomb and said, you're going to have to help us out with this deal. Now, these guys could lose their life, so they had to pay them pretty, a pretty uh, good penny. They said, you know, what you need to tell is that you fell asleep guarding the tomb and that when you did, the disciples of Jesus came and stole the body. Anybody know what the problem with that story is? They would lose their lives. But, you know, here's the other problem with that story. How do you know who stole the body if you were asleep? How do you know who stole the body? You could say we fell asleep and the body was stolen. But you can't say who it was. So their story doesn't hold water. What about the disciples? Do they have anything to gain from stealing the body of Jesus? I tell you, here's what they basically had to gain. Death. Why would this group of disciples, who were not expecting a resurrection, all of a sudden say, you know what we ought to do? We ought to just pretend Jesus didn't really die. Or here's a better thing. Let's pretend that he was raised from the dead. And we can keep this movement going. This movement that has cost Jesus his life. It is costing us everything. It's making us enemies of the state and of the friend, our friends and of the synagogue. I think we should do that. Why would they perpetuate a hoax when they had nothing materially to gain and they had everything physically to lose? Answer They would not. They would not steal the body of Jesus because there was nothing to gain and everything to lose. And yet the Bible and all of history shows us this, that after the resurrection, the movement that this dead man Jesus started blew up. And I mean it in this way. It exploded in numbers It exponentially grew such that within a few centuries it was the predominant religion all across the Roman Empire and even Constantine the emperor adopted Christianity. You know, throughout, before the time of Jesus and still today, you have all kinds of revolutionaries. There were all kinds of Messiah-like figures, people claiming to bring salvation to the world. And over and over, what you found happened to those people is they died eventually. 
they were either killed or maybe they just died or whatever. And you know what happened to the movement? They died along with the leader. Somehow in history, we have to explain why did this Christian movement totally explode in numbers and popularity and encompass the globe and all of time since if Jesus simply died. The explanation, my friends, is that Jesus did not stay dead. He was raised. That is the answer that this angelic messenger gave to those ladies, and there were other convincing proofs, namely that Jesus indeed met his disciples in Galilee, and he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and to the other disciples, and to over 500 people, offering many convincing proofs. What is the explanation to why this movement went from disappointment here in this story to astonishment of fear with these ladies and to an explosive world force that encompassed the globe and emboldened the disciples of Jesus? The answer, Christ had been raised. He defeated death in the grave. No one has ever done that. And so those disciples, the way that they made sense of the empty tomb was they understood, oh my goodness, Jesus defeated death. And he's alive. That's how they made sense of the empty tomb. That is the answer that they accepted. And finally in our time today, I want us to try to make sense of the resurrection for us today. In other words, how did the church then apply? You say, well, that's all well and good. That's, that's marvelous. Good for Jesus. Woo. He was raised 2,000 years ago. What does that mean for us sitting here in a pew in Valley Springs, Arkansas in 2000? And what year is it? 20-something? What, what does it mean? How do we make sense of the resurrection? Well, let's look at a few passages very quickly about what the resurrection means. What are the implications of it? Okay, so Jesus was raised we ask the question, so what? It's good for him. What does it say for us? What are the implications? Let me say this. Many things have changed in our world since last year. Many things have changed since Jesus and the disciples walked those dusty roads of Palestine. Many things. Many things. But I'll tell you one thing that has not changed. The grave is still hungry. The grave is still not satisfied. The grave has still not said, okay, that's enough. In other words, people are still facing death. Every one of us. That has not changed. And we need an answer to that. God, what have you done about that? 2,000 years ago, we sang about this. Jesus made a cry from the cross to die. It is finished. It is paid in full. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it basically says this, Christ was put to death for our sins or our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. Man, that, that has 
huge implications. What it basically says is this. When Jesus died on the cross, it wiped out the sin debt that we had. But it didn't do anything else necessarily. It paid for our trespasses. But Romans 4.25 says, but he was raised, the resurrection says that we are now, if we're in Christ, we are justified. We're made righteous before God. We are given a positive standing. The righteousness of Christ, the life of Christ becomes accounted to us. That's huge. We're justified by the resurrection. The resurrection is God saying, hey, I'm satisfied with what Jesus did, and now I'm offering eternal life. Jesus was raised to eternal life, and those who are in Christ will share in the resurrection. Consider 1 Corinthians 15.22. For since by a man death came, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. Just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The death sentence for humanity came when Adam, our forefather, our farthest, furthest, furthest forefather and mother, when they sinned, death came to humanity. The wages of sin is death. When God was dealing with death, he took it away in one man, the man Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In other words, the resurrection of Christ is for us who believe in Christ. What it teaches is all of those who are bound to Christ by faith and belief in Him, that He died for our sins, He was buried and rose again on the third day, His resurrection is also going to mean our resurrection. That passage in 1 Thessalonians says, all of those who died in Christ, that is Christians who have gone to the grave, they're going to be bodily raised, just like Jesus was. And every person, who is in Christ. When Jesus comes again, there is going to be a bodily resurrection for every person. That is a new glorified body. And I'd love to spend some time on that, but we just don't have time to. But here's what I would say. The grave doesn't have the final word for those who are in Jesus. The grave doesn't have the final say. Jesus does. And he's, one of these days with a trumpet sound, he's going to say, come up out of that grave and the dead in Christ will rise and be with him forever. So that's one implication that the resurrection becomes ours when we're trusting in Christ. Here's another one, Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. It says that you may know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in accord with the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul's writing and he says, you know what? God has amazing power and he has exercised it towards those who believe. His amazing power and goodness and goodwill are aimed at you. That same power that told the dead man to come up out of the grave is a power he's exercising in your life. He wants to exercise in your life. Man, I tell you, maybe you're here today and you're facing a terrible, grim future. Maybe... Today, maybe tomorrow, maybe it's a prognosis, maybe it's a funeral. I don't know what it is. 
And the future looks really dark and black and dim. But if you're in Christ, if you belong to Him, and He is your Lord, the same power that rose Jesus up out of the grave is exercised towards you. He's working out all things for the good of those who love Him. The darkness will not prevail in your life. And I think that's a great promise from Paul in the book of Ephesians. Let's look at uh, two more. Romans 6, 8 through 11. Don't have time to read the whole thing, but here's what it says. It says, if you've trusted in Christ, baptism, which we'll observe baptisms next week, and it's a beautiful picture that the person who is in Christ, their old self is buried with Christ and raised with Christ to a new life. And Paul says in that chapter in Romans 6 that if that is you, if you've died to sin in the old self and you're alive, the new you that's in Christ is here. There is a sanctifying power. In other words, sin doesn't have any claim on you. And we feel like we're powerless against sin and darkness. He says, if you're in Christ, sin doesn't have the power over you. Sin is not your master anymore. Jesus is. And his power is at work in you by the Spirit. So there's a sanctifying influence. And I love this, 1 Peter 1, 3. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's reserved in heaven for you. The resurrection, Peter says, is a living hope. Hey, let me ask you a question. Are you full of hope today? I guarantee you we're all facing some things the resurrection of Jesus gives us living hope hope for today hope for today I'll tell you no darkness no sickness no disease no financial trouble no relational trouble none of that has the final word I don't know about you. I mean, I, death is still one that, a thing that screams pretty loudly in our ear, doesn't it? Because we're all going to face it. You said, dude, you are morbid. It's just the reality. That's one thing we're all facing. We don't know when. But not even that has the final word. You're born again in Christ. If you have trusted to him, you've been given an eternal life. Eternal life. Let that soak in for just a second. How long is eternity? It goes on and on and on and on. There is no end to your life. You'll be raised in that day just like Jesus was raised bodily. Not just spiritually ethereal. Bodily. You will be raised to life that life is in you today if you're in Christ. So here's the thing. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact, but it is also a life-changing, mind-boggling theological truth. 
that means it has implications for each of us today that we, when we unite with Christ, death is overcome. The grave done been whooped. It's it. Forever and ever you will live. I need to give it a little invitation here today, and here it is. I don't know if you've ever read the, the book. I think it's called The Case for Christ. A guy named Lee Strobel was an a, a atheist. His wife started going to church and was talking about all this Jesus stuff and saved and all of that. He set out as an investigative journalist to disprove the resurrection and the Bible and all this Jesus stuff. And this investigative journalist said about a couple of years of amassing facts. He looked over the Bible. He studied the Bible. He got all kinds of documents. He did interviews and all of these things. I was hearing him on the radio again in this story on the way to work one morning. And he said this. He said, at the end of about two years of study, he said, I had amassed so much stuff and facts and truths. He said, mentally, in my reasoning, he said, I came to the fact where I said, you know what? I actually think this is true. The evidence points to the fact that this guy Jesus died and was buried and he rose again. He said, I'm sitting there and I go, yeah, I think that's true. But then he said, but what did I do with that? Because what the Bible says is to those who receive him, To them gave he power to be called the sons of God. In other words, I'm not just trying to give you a bunch of facts that you can go and and, and ponder. No, I do want you to think about them. I think what the Bible's given us is a reality that says you need to act on this. You need to think about. Do you know anybody else who's overcome the grave? Do you know any other messenger of God that's come to defeat death and offers you eternal life? It's only Jesus. And you've got to do something about that. Just like Lee Strobel, and he said, right there at my desk, surrounded by piles of papers and emails and facts and all of that, he said, I bowed my head and I said, Jesus, I believe that you're alive today, that you died for my sins, and I receive you as Lord and Savior That's my invitation to you today. So would you bow with me? If that's you today, confronted with the facts that Jesus got up out of that grave after having died for our sins as a payment, God raised him up to show you that he wants a relationship with you, wants to give you life and hope and a future. calls you to turn from sin and receive the Lord Jesus in your heart. And the Bible says if you believe in your heart and then confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, He'll save you. He'll give you that life. So the first place of business is in your heart. It's in that secret place inside of you where you surrender to Jesus and say, I know that you died for me. And I know that you live, that I might have life. And I give my life to you. Tell him that in your heart. And so it says, 
Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe that God has raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. So what I would ask you to do is, if that's you today and you've believed in your heart, now you need to confess with your mouth. If that's you, let me just give you a very uh, clear invitation. Here's what I would ask of you. Would you come find me after the service? Or Brother John, and just tell us, I've believed in Jesus. And let us walk through the next steps with you. Okay? I'm not going to call you up here. And listen, some of you got lunch plans and you got family stuff to do. And uh, I, I want to respect that. Would you get a hold of me this week? Come see me. Call me. Email me. Email the church. Let us know. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is now your Lord. And let me walk through that with you. That's the way to have eternal life and a resurrection. Hey, friends, one last thing. If you're here with your head bowed, and you're a Christian, you got that settled in days past. But the events of the past year or whatever you're facing in the next year has just become absolutely overwhelming, and you're struggling. Could I just speak a word of hope to you and say (laughs) the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and for you. God's power, God's goodness, His kindness is on you. And He's watching you. And He's walking through and will walk through this valley, this darkness, this thing that you're facing. He will walk through it with you. Hey, even if it leads to a grave, that is not the final word. So trust Him. Trust Him. Hope in Christ. Father, we pray today with a sense of belief and anticipation and hope and expectation that you are working out all things according to your good plan. Even in the darkest of hours, there is a light of hope. There is a sunrise. There is a message of resurrection in the future. And we cling to that by faith, trusting you. Not our own power but your power. Lord, I thank you for the hope that that gives us, the unshakable, immovable hope that we have in Christ. And I want to pray for every person that's here today, Lord, that your spirit would hover in and around their hearts and lives and work and minister to the specific point of need that they're facing. Lord, would you do that? That's your prerogative and your power that we're asking for. We'll give you the praise, the honor, and the worship that you're due. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, listen, thanks for your kind attention. And I appreciate y'all being here. And I want to invite you back. Invite you back. We, uh, we have lots of stuff going on Wednesdays, stuff for all ages. And I want to invite you to be a part of our congregation. We'd love to have you in the fellowship of Jesus. Hey, listen, also, if any of you have an extra seat at the table for lunch, I'm available. So, no, I'm not. I'm really not. I think I have a family thing. Hey, but if you don't have a place to go, come with me. I'll take you along. I'm sure we have plenty of food. Is that okay, Whitney? All right, all right. All right. Hey, love you guys. Wish you a happy Resurrection Sunday. You're dismissed. You didn't have anything, did you? All right, yeah, you're dismissed.